Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about some of the highlights of how the 2020 election was won, the people doing the work, and what's still at stake. Before we get started, though, a quick word on the show. A day that we've been fearing for years has finally arrived. We, here at Best of Left, have been kicked out of the Amazon affiliate program. That has been a foundational source of our revenue for the show since 2009. Along with memberships and any other advertisers we can find, Amazon has been basically one of the three legs of our financial stool. To put things into perspective, losing that affiliate funding is approximately like having 400 members cancel all at the same time. And just to be clear, we did not have 400 members worth of financial breathing room before getting this news. So I'm going to be talking more about this at the end of the show, but what you need to know now is that memberships are available and incredibly easy to sign up for, and you can now purchase gift memberships. If you're a fan of Patreon, you can sign up there. And if you're a fan of Simplicity above all else, use our standard membership system for the easiest possible process for getting signed up. All the details for all of that are at bestofleft.com support. That's bestofleft.com support, which is also linked prominently in the show notes of this and every episode. As I said, I'll be talking more about this at the end of the show, so please don't miss that. And now... On to the show itself with clips today from Democracy Now!, Latino USA, It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders, The Takeaway, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Majority Report. To talk more about the election and to look at who turned out to vote in this historic election. We're joined by Democracy Now!'s own Juan Gonzalez, who's been closely looking at who turned out to vote. He's joining us from New Brunswick, New Jersey, where he's a professor at Rutgers University. So, Juan, it is astounding what has taken place in this country. We are talking about a record-smashing number of voters. It is believed over 150 million people voted. Can you talk about the demographics of the vote? Uh, in the last days, the main narrative has been, uh, before the election final day on November 3rd, uh, that African Americans and Latinos were not coming out to vote for Joe Biden to the extent that it was believed they would be. Um, but this is a narrative right now you are refuting. Uh, can you talk about your findings? Yes, Amy. And uh, I've been pouring over the numbers and trying to make sense of what happened uh, in this election. And this developing narrative uh, that uh, Latinos and to some extent African-Americans shifted more toward uh, Donald Trump in this election, that they underperformed for Joe Biden and the Democratic Party, I believe is a largely false narrative. I think the main story of this election, as you mentioned, that saw record turnout, we won't have the exact numbers, but it looks like about 158, 59, 160 million people, uh, close to 160 million people voted. Uh, it, the main story is that people of color, especially Latinos, flocked to the polls in numbers that far exceeded what the experts had expected. 
while the total number of votes cast by white Americans barely increased from the last presidential election. Uh, And most importantly, that white voters, including white women, voted at higher percentages for Trump this year than they did in 2016. So how come none of the experts are asking why white voters underperformed the Democratic Party? Uh, and, and let me be a little bit more specific. Uh, there, there does appear to have been some areas of the country where there was a an increase in the percentage of the Latino vote for Donald Trump, uh, specifically in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas uh, and in the Miami-Dade County, both of which I should note for those people who know the voting patterns of the Latino community have always been relatively uh, conservative areas of the Latino community uh, in terms of voting. Uh, even though South Texas is largely Democratic, it's always been a moderate to centrist or or conservative Democratic uh, 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 voting bastion. Uh, but my analysis of the numbers shows a completely different story when you look at the ent- uh, country as a whole. And I'm doing this based on the exit polls that were th- most of the networks uh, use, which is the Edison National Election Poll, which has always been it's it's been criticized in the past precisely because it uh, it gives uh, doesn't give correct numbers or doesn't give uh, valid numbers on the Latino community. But it's still the only uh, massive uh, exit poll that we have until we get uh, more scientific studies that come maybe months later or a year later. So, first of all, the historic turnout. Right. The, if we take the number of 159 um, million, uh, last election was 136 million people voted. So we're talking about an increase of 23 million voters compared to the last election. Phenomenal increase. Who were those 23 million people uh, and uh, where did they come from? So I think I have a chart here. I hope the producers are able to put it up here. But you'll see that according to the exit polls, 13 percent of the Lati- of the vote. Uh, came from Latino uh, uh, voters, Amer- uh, Latino Americans. That represents 20.6 million P- Latinos voted in this election. That is an incredible increase, 65% over the last election, which was already a record for Latinos when it was only 12.6%. For the first time in U.S. history, because Latinos have never voted uh, more than 50 percent of the eligible population. They've always been 45, 46 or even less. For the first time, about two thirds of the eligible Latinos came to the polls. Eight million more Latinos voted in this election than voted in the last election. Then come the Asian-Americans, a phenomenal turnout in the Asian-American community, uh, 3.6 million more votes uh, than they then voted in uh, in 2016. And then African-Americans also had an increase. Uh, they went from 17.1 million who voted in 2016 to 19 million, about 1.9 million. So that's an increase, but it's 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 not an increase as you might expect after a year or two years now of massive racial justice protests and the pioneering candidacy of, Kam- of Kamala Harris. But it's still an increase. So what about white voters, the largest sector of the electorate, but a diminishing portion? In 2016, 100 million whites voted in the election. In this election, 103 million voted, just 2.7 million increase 
in the total white vote in the country. So the bulk of the increase of the vote in this election came from people of color, largely Latinos. So now people say, well, uh, uh, but the but there was a slight percentage increase in the uh, among African-Americans and Latinos for Trump. Well, percentages don't win elections. Votes win elections. Right. And that's what you've got to understand. Would you rather have 70 percent of 12 million votes or would you rather have 68 percent of 20 million votes? The increase has been so large, whereas the percentages have stayed roughly the same, that there has been there was enormous increase in the votes by Asian-Americans, Latino-Americans and African-Americans for Biden and the Democratic Party. Uh, Why was this? And I think the enthusiasm and the turnout of the Latinx community uh, was fueled by four years of constant Republican scapegoating and attacks on Latinos from the 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 disastrous response to uh, Hurricane Maria for the Puerto Rican community, to family separations, uh, and and also to the terrible uh, response of the Trump administration to the coronavirus. And it is why Arizona and Nevada and Colorado uh, uh, are likely, it seems, to go for Joe Biden. And what has happened now is that there is a new brown belt voting bloc that is developing in the Southwest that includes Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, and very soon, Texas as well. Uh, So uh, the real underperformers in this election were white voters who not only did not have a qualitative increase in their vote totals, uh, they dropped from 71% of the electorate to 65% of the electorate, but they voted in an even higher percentage for Trump this time than last time or than they did for John McCain in 2008. And this is especially true in uh, uh, among white women. They t- so uh, so now how is this possible given the uh, years now of sexual uh, of uh, allegations of sexual assault uh, against Trump, uh, his denigrating of women, his family separation policies that white women increased? the percentage of the vote that they gave to Donald Trump. What's up with that? (laughs) Why are all the commentators not dissecting what the heck is going on in white America and with white women in America? Uh, Unfortunately, it seems to me, looking at the numbers, there is no gender gap. There's a racial gender gap in that African-American and Latina women are voting so overwhelmingly uh, for the Democratic Party, but not white women. And I think that needs to be analyzed more. And finally, I think the key issue here is that the United States being the world's prime imperialist power with no real competition, uh, uh, no real adversaries who threaten it, and only China who can compete economically uh, with the United States that we are a country that is increasingly moving to a situation where the Republican Party is moving more and more to be the party of white people in America. And the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming the party of the new multiracial majority of the American people. That's what I take from the results of this election, no matter who ends up actually winning the election or what happens with the Senate or what happens with the Congress. It's the developing trends in the electorate of America that are showing enormous racial division uh, between the two parties and who they represent.
So, Carlos, one of the big ideas that has also been out there is that Latinos and Latinas who did vote for Donald Trump were mostly white. Um, and this narrative that that is because of their own anti-blackness, their own racism. So what do you think about that narrative, Carlos? It is incredibly complicated. I wouldn't isolate it to say it is simply a matter of the identity of the voter. I think there is an anti-blackness that we have to wrestle with. I think that's manifest in a broader sense, not just because someone is white. I think there is a a sense of Americanness. Sabrina did some incredible reporting on voters in Hialeah um, and the wrapping themselves with the American flag in parts of Miami it was more predictive of Trump support than even wearing a MAGA hat. Where Trump made inroads, I think there's now evidence is that it wasn't just among Cubans. It wasn't isolated in certain places. I think you could go out West and see folks who aren't necessarily white identifying, who do identify as Latino or as indigenous or, or any of the categories. It's more complicated, but I think that there is a strain of anti-blackness, but I don't want to again oversimplify to that because I think there are so many other factors. Um, I think that we forget those of us who watch the news every day, the extent to which people aren't getting the same news stories or filtered in quite the same way are very concerned about something like the economy and are letting the economy overshadow all other concerns. And there is this resilient view of Trump as a better steward of the economy. Again, for those who aren't paying as close attention, who still view as Donald Trump as the guy from The Apprentice. All right. So, Sabrina, let's go back to you uh, growing up in Hialeah. Hialeah is more than 80% Cuban. And when you were little, you remember kids at school chanting about George W. Bush back in 2004. So this was his post 9-11 reelection. What were you hearing kids chanting back in 2004? Yeah, so I was remembering this this other day. And I, I mean, I remember in my class and I was in elementary school and I remember in 2004, kids were chanting, vote for Bush because Carrie got smushed. That was actually a thing. And it was, and it was heated. There would be heated debates in elementary school and there were heated debates in middle school and high school always about politics. And always, you know, if you liked a Democratic candidate, you were going to get like picked on or like you were going to get criticized by your friends. Did you do any reporting? And was there a similar chant for Trump uh, among like kids that you heard of? I mean, there was just widespread love for him. I mean, one of the most striking things of seeing all the photos of the different caravans uh, across Miami and all the different, you know, rallies that were held for him were the amount of children that were there. And, you know, seeing kids with their MAGA hats or seeing kids with, you know, a Trump 2020 flag and, and carrying signs and all of that. I mean, they're definitely like a part of the equation when you're looking in Hialeah at this widespread support for Trump. Um, it, it's not just, you know, voters and, and older Cubans. I think a narrative has always been about, you know, Cubans are reliably Republican and Cubans go out to vote in big numbers because a lot of the Republican Cuban voters are old. But, you know, this election, we're talking about younger Cubans as well. Part of the narrative this time around that helped Trump was the fact that, you know, more recent arrivals and more younger Cubans are moving towards the Republican Party or are, you know, registering or identifying as Republican. In Hialeah, for example, Hialeah specifically, that is very reliably Republican, a very red city. Uh, in 2016, it was almost split. It was an almost even 50-50 between Hillary and, uh, and Trump. So 
that, I mean, showed that there was obviously a movement towards the Democratic Party that was being led by younger Cubans. But in 2020, that's not necessarily the case. There are obviously Cuban Democrats. It's not not every single Cuban is a Republican. I would like that on the record. But the story this year is not about the young Cubans that are supporting Biden. It, it still is that there's young Cubans supporting Trump. All right. So, Carlos, Trump actually wasn't the only Republican who did well in the state. And so there are a lot of lessons, not just about um, about Trump, but about the future of Florida and its politics. So Maria Elvira Salazar, she did unseat Democratic Congresswoman Donna Shalala, who represents part of Miami. Uh, Carlos Jimenez, who is the Republican mayor of Miami right now, also unseated Democratic Congresswoman Mucarcel Powell. So is this about support for Trump trickling down or, or is this because of solid, you know, strong Republican based politics that are going on? Yeah, elsewhere in the country, we saw actually a lot of Republicans down ballot outperforming Donald Trump. In Miami, he had coattails. And I think when you look at Maria Elvira, when you look at um, in, the, in a state Senate race, Ileana Garcia, who was the founder of Latinas for Trump, is now in a recount against an incumbent a Democrat who no one thought was going to lose. Trump created a kind of MAGA identity that other people have latched onto. There was a confluence of factors that created this kind of identity and this new kind of social pressure where, to borrow a phrase, if you're voting for Biden, you ain't Cuban, right? Like that's the message or you ain't Venezuelan or whatever it was. I think the, the mistake people make is trying to isolate it in terms of a set of policies. I think policy is oversimplistic. There was a very active media ecosystem and there was this message that was drawing a line in the sand that was essentially a culture war. It was essentially a culture war of saying either you're with us, you're with them. And candidates like Maria Elvira were very much on one side of that line. So can we talk about the Puerto Rican vote for a second? What is the narrative that was upsetting to you about this vote in Florida? You look at a vote like the Puerto Rican vote and you can't oversimplify. There is such a complexity to it. You have a combination of New Yorkans, others who had moved from the Northeast down to Florida, just like other retirees. You had Puerto Ricans who'd moved um, to Central Florida in previous waves. And then you had those who'd moved post-2010, not just around the hurricane, but a little bit before the hurricane in moments of economic crisis on the island. And those waves all behaved a little bit differently. And I think part of the mistake that was made was narrowing or flattening the Puerto Rican interest in this election down to one issue, being the hurricane. If you look at the ads targeting Puerto Ricans, it was all Donald Trump throwing paper towels. When in our polling and all of the research repeatedly, what were Puerto Ricans saying they cared about the most and was shaping their vote? It was the economy, it was COVID, it was healthcare, just like everyone else. And yet those messages were not leading in the ads that were targeted at the Puerto Rican vote. Puerto Rican vote in Orlando, by the way, being very different from even the Puerto Rican vote in Pennsylvania. We didn't see Trump make inroads into the Puerto Rican vote in Pennsylvania the way that I think we saw him make um, in Central Florida. And so there are differences even there in both the, the nature of the Puerto Rican voter, um, their worldview ideology, and in the ways that the campaigns approach them. And I think another piece of this that's really important for the Puerto Rican vote, for the Cuban vote, for everyone in South Florida and throughout Florida of Latinos, was all the misinformation that was coming out. I mean, they were being targeted left and right with messaging about how Biden was a pedophile or how Biden was uh, actually going to be part of a satanic cabal. And there was, you know, all this kind of messaging, which seems insane, 
but actually, you know, persuaded people or actually got people to stay home. You know, the idea wasn't necessarily that with misinformation, you go from being a big Biden supporter to being a Trump supporter. But if you're one of those people that's not sure, that hasn't really participated in the political process, you don't speak English well yet, and you're trying to navigate this process, you just decide to stay home because you say, okay, well, you know, if all these things about Biden were to be true, then why would I go out to vote for him? Yeah, I think a lot of people are like, well, that sounds completely crazy. How How is it possible that, that that even had an impact? In Florida, when we talk about the Hispanic vote, we talk about it in terms of a margins game. Because, again, Republicans aren't trying to win a majority of the vote. What Jeb Bush started perfecting back in the day and then has been carried forward is this game of trying to just shave off a few votes here and there from different subgroups. So even when we talk about Puerto Ricans, Joe Biden still wins over 60% easy of the Puerto Rican vote. But Donald Trump gets a few points in. And some big part of that is that it's no longer just about two campaigns warring through ads and the nightly news. It's that now there's a whole other world of information that is below the radar. And then in Miami, the added problem that it's an echo chamber, that it's not just on WhatsApp. It's that it then is reported, it's on the local nightly news. Univision and Telemundo local affiliates are part of the problem. It's local radio in Miami that's then echoing these same messages. It's even getting into the local newspaper. We had a whole scandal around El Nuevo Herald running a supplement that was full of misinformation um, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And then the Trump campaign picking up on it and cultivating it and sending it out and trying to further push those narratives themselves. So it's this very sophisticated circuit where you can't just blame any one channel, but where WhatsApp is, I think, an obvious cesspool of awful political information for sure. Ground News is a new newsreader app that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories, and it's the first ever news comparison platform. And I really have to say, I have become an evangelist for Ground News. I tell people about it all the time, even when I'm not getting paid to, and here's why. Number one, there are no ads in the app, which means they have no incentive to design it to facilitate doom scrolling. Ground News is designed to make you maximally informed and minimally addicted, something no other news app can say. And number two, being able to easily compare headlines on a given story is a complete game changer. I know of no other place where you can do this, and it fundamentally changes your relationship to the news and the sources you go to to get it. Honestly, I think it is really something you just have to try out for yourself to fully understand. But now here's the tricky part of this ad, because Ground News has a freemium business model. The entire app and all of its bells and whistles are available for everyone to use with just a few limitations for free, with the option to pay a subscription fee for unlimited access to all those bells and whistles. But if you just go and download the app and happily use it, there's no way for Ground News to know that I'm the one who sent you, which is how podcast ads work. So if you're worried about paying for the app, don't be. Go use it for free with only minor limitations. But once you're hooked and realize that this is an app with a philosophy you want to support, as I'm sure you will, 
be sure to head to ground.news slash best. There you can sign up for seven days free of Ground News Pro and get an extra 25% off your Ground News membership. So it's just two bucks a month billed yearly. That way they'll know I sent you. That's the Ground News app in any app store and ground.news slash best when you're ready to sign up. We're going to break and then come back to talk about what Native Americans can do, and that has to do with voting, which certainly people came out in force. We'd like to ask you to stay with us, Allie. We're also going to be joined by Native American from Wisconsin. But Jody Archambault, in this last 30 seconds um, that we have you, um, can you overall talk about the massive uh, voter turnout, um, at least increase in Native American turnout? not noted um, in the mainstream media. Sure. Uh, I just want to say that despite the risk of being exposed to COVID, the, the numbers were incredible. And I think that this is something that is often overlooked by mainstream media only because mainstream media has a tendency to leave out the full picture when it comes to Native Americans. In fact, CNN did an infographic and they labeled, they, they did a breakdown of all the different people who voted in the, in the election. And for Native Americans, they didn't have us labeled as Native Americans. They, they called us something else. We have Six- that actual graphic right here. <laughs> it says white. It says Latinx. It says black and then or Latino, uh, black and then something else and then Asian. Yep. Yeah. And social media, we are very much, uh, our resiliency is through our humor. And so it just took off. Everybody kept saying, like, Custer said, yeah, they sure are something else. You know, Custer from uh, the the last couple of centuries ago. And a lot of people have just taken it as a call to try to bring attention to, to the people at CNN, to the people at the mainstream who just continuously don't see us. They don't see us. And it's intentional because we are a reminder of the bloodshed that it took to make this country. We're not congruent with the American dream. And we're still here. We're, we're actually leading, leading the way on how to handle pandemics because we've been through so many of them. And it's so much in, ingrained in our communities that we're not seeing this as we're not victims in this. We're actually ready to fight. We're ready to push back and do what we can to protect ourselves because it's the only way we've made it this far. Well, and we know that people in America don't see us. So we have to we have to do it for ourselves. Yeah. yeah and, and Jody, I wanted to comment on this because I also when I saw this uh, this figure of something else or other in these exit polls, tried to dig down a little deeper into what was behind it, especially since it had appeared to grow by about a percentage point from the previous election. It turns out that this is a catch-all uh, a placeholder where they include people who identify themselves as multiracial, 
people who declined in the exit polls to identify their their race uh, and also Native Americans. So it's a catch all, which uh, it's it's indefensible, uh, but it is a, a complex number. And it turns out that about two thirds of those who identified as other or something else voted for Joe Biden versus uh, versus Donald Trump. So uh, it's uh, it's so it's a shortcut for the exit poll people not have to do a better job of being able to parse uh, the various parts of the electorate. And Ali, I wanted to ask you about that. What were the results, what you've been able to tell? Not so much, obviously, because the exit polls didn't uh, didn't factor in or count uh, Native American votes, but what's been the results and the actual vote totals that you've been able to see so far? Yeah, well, I, I believe around 60-something thousand Navajos in Navajo Nation. So we, um, Coconino County, uh, Navajo County, which is where I did all of my work and I vote in Navajo County and uh, Apache County, they all overlap the Navajo Nation. And um, those in those areas, um, Navajo people turned out to vote. I think um, 84% of those who had registered um, turned out to vote and 97% of those who cast their ballot, voted for Joe Biden. And um, that's just incredible. That just shows um, the contribution of the Native vote in key swing states. And not only the Navajo Nation, but um, there is a map that compares tribal communities, and all of those tribal communities um, voted blue. And so um, we came out strong. I think we did do a great job in reclaiming Arizona, saying that we're still here, that we've always been here. Um, and that now, you know, we're going to keep working <clears throat> to hold this new administration accountable as well. You know, you not only organized um, Navajo voters, Ali, um, but uh, one of the hardest groups, not so much to organize, to get out in the streets, to be activist, but to actually vote. And that's young people. Maybe it's because of your last name, Ali Young, but you sure managed to galvanize a lot of young people. What kind of message do you have for what is the most effective way to get first-time voters involved, to make them feel like they really are making a difference when it's, you know, they haven't done this before? Well, <clears throat> my strategy was all around, um, you know, what we, you got to think about what we're working with. And uh, with young people, um, we are very tuned in to social media. Um, so definitely it is a powerful tool. So connecting with them that way, we had a huge social media strategy. Um, and also, um, layering in the the um, the cultural revitalization and and is, is particularly with um, native youth and um, but also I think with with a lot of other youth uh, across other communities of color because I think we're in this amazing moment where all of our communities of color are reconnecting to our cultures and 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 really proud of who we are and where we come from so using that and 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 saying let's use Let's show up in that way. Let's show through social media um, in, um, a, you know, fighting for our representation that that takes work. And we have to, uh, you know, we're not just going to automatically, you know, be talked about in the media. We have to we have to show up. And, and that's that's the messaging that I use, especially for, um, you know, the, for, for Native people who who were too often invisible in the media we're called something else. 
And so, you know, let's, let's turn that on its head. Let's show them that um, we're still here. We're not going away. Um, and we're gonna, um, we're gonna make our statements. And uh, I think that's really effective with especially our leaders, our young leaders today. We are um, very progressive. We are, um, I think, as Native people, we're innately activists and political um, because we're not even supposed to be here. <laughs> uh, and um, that's that's a, and, definitely the, and the messaging Ollie, and strategy that I use. Ali, we, we have less than a minute left, but I'm wondering just if you could quickly say what your main expectations are of the a new Biden administration's policy toward the uh, Native American people. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to be um, making sure that we're represented, especially when it comes to uh, climate change. Um, we do want a seat at the table. We want to be in that conversation uh, because we have just incredible knowledge about how the ways that we respect Mother Earth, that we um, we honor Mother Earth. And those are those are things that will end up saving um, saving Mother Earth. And um, so learning from us uh, and collaborating with us and also on issues of we're still in COVID-19 and it's still severely impacting our tribal communities. So we were expected, uh, we're expecting them to work with us and helping us to bring the funding and the aid that we need because $8 billion was not enough in the uh, initial stimulus package. Today's episode is sponsored by Mack Weldon, a premium men's brand that believes in smart designs and high-quality fabrics. They're a one-stop shop for men's basics from socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, active shorts. Mack Weldon promises comfort and a consistent fit. But it doesn't stop there because the fabric technology is really what makes all the difference. Mack Weldon offers a wide range of customized fabrics that can keep up with you no matter what your day looks like. They're 18-hour, silver, air-knit, dry-knit, warm-knit, really, they've got you covered. Mack Weldon is exactly the kind of company that makes Amanda furious in an it's way too easy for you to buy your clothes kind of way. I've gone to the mall with her when she was in desperate need of a wardrobe update. She looked into a dozen stores and walked out nearly empty-handed because nothing is quite right and nothing fits together. Whereas I get to log into Mack Weldon, get everything I need from top to bottom for a refreshed set of outfits in about 30 minutes, and check that box for another couple of years. Speaking of simplicity, check out Mack Weldon's All Black Pack for just 98 bucks while supplies last. Visit MacWeldon.com slash best and enter the promo code BEST and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's their All Black Pack for just 98 bucks. And visit MacWeldon.com slash best and use the promo code BEST to get 20% off your first order. Two runoffs for the U.S. Senate, both happening in Georgia this January. Right, two Republican incumbents. Here's the math heading into them. 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats, meaning Democrats need to win them both. 50-50 means Vice President Harris would break the tie in the Senate. To figure out what's really at stake, I called up a reporter covering both of these races, Tia Mitchell. Tia is a Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And to start, I asked her to break down who the candidates are. In one runoff, there's incumbent Senator David Perdue, a Republican. He was one of those outside candidates who had never run for office before. He is facing off against John Ossoff. 
a Democrat. A lot of you guys remember him because he ran for Congress in 2017 in a special election, and he lost then in a runoff. In the other runoff, there is incumbent Senator Kelly Leffler. She's a Republican, and she was appointed to the role after an unexpected Senate vacancy. She's only been serving for almost a year. She is up against Raphael Warnock, a Democrat. Even though this is his first time running for office, he's been an activist on progressive issues. So with all eyes on Georgia right now, I had a lot of questions for Tia. So I was reading the other day that already in these two races... More than $120 million has been spent. And that number will only grow between now and the actual runoff, which is what, early January. How big of a deal is that amount of money in these races? And what does that look and feel like if you're just a person in Georgia? Is it just bombarding you everywhere you go? Absolutely. Um, That's what Mm. it looks like. (laughs) Especially if you're, you know, one of those super voters, you're getting... Mailers. Wait, who's a super voter? You know, somebody who like votes all the time. I might not be using the right language oh, for it, but I like it. I like <laughs> a it. frequent voter who, you know, can be counted on to show up. But gotcha. just in general on TV, you're seeing these four individuals, Ossoff, Warnock, Purdue, and Leffler, at every commercial break. And when you turn on YouTube, you're seeing digital ads. Um, but it also means that there's a lot of attention on Georgia. You have a lot of national media sending their reporters to Georgia to cover the race. And so, I mean, in some ways, I think it Georgia finds it cool to be the center of attention. It's something that <laughs> Democrats in Georgia have been saying, like, pay attention to us. We, yeah. we can be, make a difference. And uh-huh. it's finally coming true. Yeah. I've been hearing about a lot of progressive activists just flocking to the state right now. The GOP also just sending folks down as well. Do Southerners like all that outside influence when they're getting ready to vote in a very important race, two very important races? So I think it's interesting because... You know, Republicans usually point the finger at Democrats and say, look, you're raising all this money in California and New York um, Mm -hmm. for Georgia races. And you're bringing all your carpetbagger friends in, you know, to try Mm -hmm. to influence our Georgia races. But now Republicans are doing the same thing. You know, they have a 50 (laughs) state fundraising strategy that they've just launched. And, you know, they're sending folks to Georgia, too, because it's so crucial I think for Georgia, for like the residents of Georgia, it's not so much about who's saying what at this point. You're not changing a lot of minds. It's turnout. It's getting Mm -hmm. people to show up, to cast their ballots. We haven't even talked about the whole attack on Georgia's election process and how that may or may not influence people to participate. Because if you're a Republican for the past few weeks, you've had the leaders of your party tell you that Georgia doesn't know how to run an election. You know, at least nationally, Democrats in Georgia seem to have a more unified face. You know, everyone on the left has fallen in line behind Stacey Abrams and her work to mobilize potential progressive voters and black voters. Is that portrayal of solidarity actually true for Democrats in Georgia? Yes, for right now, Democrats are much more unified because the stakes are very clear for Democrats. Either you win both seats 
and you help President Biden with his, you know, new administration, or you lose either one or both, and that makes it much more difficult for this president that Georgia already helped deliver, you know? So Stacey Abrams is such a high-profile voice, um, not only because she has this playbook that everyone's crediting with, you know, providing a blueprint for how Democrats can compete in Georgia. And she's turned out to be right in a lot of ways. But she also has her own credibility she built up when she ran for governor in 2018. And and the thing that made her really special then was she campaigned statewide. Georgia has 159 counties. That's a lot. Yes, a lot. <laughs> wow. Stacey Abrams visited every county when she was running for Mm. governor because her philosophy Mm. was, I might not be able to win a majority of voters in this county, but there are some votes I can get. Yeah. You know, there are so many interesting data points in the Georgia results this November and possibly more interesting data points to come in this runoff in January. You know, we saw black voter turnout increase almost exponentially in some instances in the state. What, in your mind, are the biggest demographic stories come out of Georgia right now when it comes to these votes? So Georgia's demographics are changing, particularly in the Atlanta suburbs, becoming more diverse, more people of color, younger voters, making the state more democratic. You know, right now, Republicans still control the legislature, the governor's office, and all statewide elected offices. But you have this one recent bright spot for Democrats with Joe Biden carrying the state. And they're hoping that this trend will continue. But the other thing that really helped Joe Biden win Georgia was college-educated white people who... Hmm particularly in in Atlanta suburbs, but all across the state, you know, they had soured on President Trump and were willing to give Joe Biden a chance. So Hmm. that's, again, something that is going to be a data point we look at in this runoff because, you know, in one race we have Purdue versus Ossoff. There is an age difference, but they're both white men. But Hmm. in the Leffler Warnock race, there is a different racial dynamic there with Warnock, a black man who's a pastor of a black church and who has championed very progressive issues very publicly in a way that Republicans are using to, you know, paint him as a radical progressive, whereas Kelly Leffler is a white woman, a wealthy white woman who lives in Buckhead, the posh Atlanta suburb. The question is, where white people fall in these races can help determine whether Democrats can win. Martha, when we talk about um, black women and and political activism, we can't ignore the fact that Black Lives Matter was founded uh, by three black women. That is also something that, can you tell us a little bit about the historical engagement of black women in terms of organizing movements like that, organizing to get the vote, organizing to bring uh, attention to issues that affect not just black women, but black people more broadly? 
we can't miss in this moment, even as Senator Harris is the vice president-elect, that what undergirds that is black women's organizing. Um, just tune in to Alicia Garza and appreciate um, her message, right, which is yes to the streets and yes to the ballot box. And what we saw in this election season was the wedding of those two approaches to American politics. Is that something that's you would say has gotten stronger, uh, not just taking it to the streets, but actually taking it to the ballot box? Was that the missing link in terms of engagement, particularly for um, black women, black people in this country? That has always been true for us, but I think that um, in this season, that became apparent um, in the sort of compressed circumstances of coronavirus, a summer of Black Lives Matter um, uprisings across the country with this extraordinarily consequential election. Election, we all got a lesson in African-American politics, I think, this season by seeing it compressed under extraordinary circumstances. Those facets that always have always been there and um, we saw them come together vividly. Black women, Asian, white, Latina, Native American women who throughout our nation's history have paved the way for this moment tonight. Women who fought and sacrificed so much for equality and liberty and justice for all, including the black women who are often too often overlooked, but so often prove they are the backbone of our democracy. Kimberly, we just heard uh, Kamala Harris say that black women cannot be overlooked anymore. Um, Joe Biden in his uh, in his speech essentially uh, over the weekend said that he uh, recognized the power of black voters. Are black women going to finally get their due from this administration? That is the hope. Um, I think we're really hoping to uh, finally get the return on our political investment, uh, that we will, uh, our issues will uh, have a, a voice and have a place in this administration. And as much as uh, we fought to support and uh, get the ticket to, to this place, we will definitely be holding it accountable uh, and looking at uh, many of the policies that um, the president-elect uh, laid out in his victory speech on Saturday night that, uh, that he actually puts uh, a lot of policy and meat behind them. But um, I think this is a huge step forward, the fact that uh, things like systemic racism and uh, health care are, you know, front and center uh, in his mind and absolutely in the vice president elect's mind as well. Um, I think there's a huge potential for a tremendous amount of progress, but we will definitely be doing as much as we can to help advance that and also hold them accountable. Martha, there's uh, to your point about, you know, making a lot about being the first, being the first often also means being the only. Um, and there will be an enormous amount of pressure, uh, not just on Joe Biden, uh, but also on Kamala Harris um, being in that role. She received a lot of criticism before uh, earning her spot as vice president in terms of how she dealt with criminal justice issues when she was attorney general of California. So the pressure that she is under is, I think, in many ways, unimaginable to have to sort of 
um, satisfy the uh, the demands of a very progressive uh, constituency that essentially voted her into office. I don't think um, Senator Harris is new to that sort of pressure. Um, as you've mentioned, you know she's already been subject to that kind of scrutiny, as she herself was part of this primary contest um, that led up to her nomination. Um, so in one sense, I think she's someone who is frankly um, very tested when it comes to that sort of scrutiny, um, that sort of pressure. On the other hand, the, the pressure I'm interested in is um, what it is like for not only um, leaders in this country, um, but leaders across the globe um, to come to the table in Washington and sit across from now Vice President Harris um, to contend with a black woman world leader, um, not only to understand her history, but to understand her position, her ideas, and frankly, to understand her culture. Um, you know, one of the things that we've commented on is everything from Senator Harris rocking, you know, Tim's and Chuck's on the tarmac um, to the side eye during debates. Um, I think there's a new page in the handbook book of world diplomacy, and it will be one devoted to um, understanding how black women come culturally um, to the table in American and world politics. I think about John Lewis, and I think about him being the conscience of, of Congress and why black people have to bear this weight and wonder how we can take some of that weight off of black women to have to be you know, this deciding factor um, every time an election comes around. Or maybe it's not a weight. I don't know. I mean, I think it is a burden. Um, it is not an enviable burden, I think, to be the conscience of this nation um, season after season. It is not an enviable burden to be holding up fundamental pillars of this democracy, like voting rights, season after season. At the same time, someone has to do that work, it seems, in our democracy. Um, and um, thank goodness um, that black women have been willing and able to step into that role and to be our conscience, uh, but also to do the work on the ground to make good on our best ideals. I think that if there is one thing we could do, uh, it might be, for example, to use these years to finally um, dispense with voter suppression. Right? Part of the effort right, that black women have to make is because we're not only doing the work of getting uh, folks registered, getting to the, the ballot box, getting those ballots counted. We're doing that in the face of a still rising tide of voter suppression across this country, whether it's shuttered polling places or it's four-hour-long lines or it's voter ID requirements or exact match obligations. This is the heavy lifting is in part structural. Um, and we have an opportunity here going forward out of this election to restore the Voting Rights Act and to take down the kinds of barriers that black women are having to um, hurdle themselves over in order to do the fundamental work of democracy.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, speaking with Juan Gonzalez, who broke down the demographics of the 2020 vote. Latino USA burst the myth of the Latino vote. Democracy Now! spoke with a Native youth leader about the major Native vote push. It's been a minute with Sam Sanders featured a discussion of the organizing going on in Georgia ahead of the runoff elections, and the takeaway explained the power of black women at the ballot box and as the bulwark of democracy itself. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard two bonus clips, including Tom Hartman discussing the new voter suppression tactic in Georgia for those without cars, and the majority report with Sam Cedar breaking down the importance of the runoff elections regarding the future of the Senate. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes, and they're part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find that if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content, which includes bonus episodes and you know, additional conversations and everything like that. You can have all of that delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed by signing up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or you can request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. So every request is granted, no questions asked. Now, speaking of financial hardship, I'm going to slide right into the fiscal cliff that we're running into. Longtime listeners may hear some echoes from last year. But I I promise that this time is a little bit different. In the fall of 2019, I announced that we were approaching a fiscal cliff. I had been warned by the company that sold ads for the show that they were no longer going to be doing ads for the show because I refused to go along with their plan to use listener IP addresses to automatically insert customized ads based on your location and possibly your internet usage and all of that, because I find that super creepy. So they said, okay, if you don't want to do that, we're just not going to sell ads for you anymore as of the end of the year. And so I announced we're headed for a fiscal cliff. This was the end of 2019, a little more than a year ago. And so hundreds of people heard the call and signed up for memberships to help fill the gap of what did eventually come to pass. Uh, That advertising company did eventually drop us, stopped selling ads, and for the vast majority of 2020, we have not had very many ads in the show because of that. What's different this year is that we've already fallen off the cliff. We didn't have any notice. I wasn't able to warn you ahead of time. We were not able to prepare a couple of months in advance The rug has been pulled out from under us as of the moment I found out about it a couple of days ago, and we are not in a good financial situation right now. So we, as I said, really need for people to sign up for memberships right now. And as it just so happens, it's the holiday season and our new system for memberships includes gift memberships. So if that resonates with you, then then uh, go forward and uh, we'll appreciate every single new sign up uh, that, that comes in, regardless of how that comes in. Now, it just so happens, the timing of this is completely coincidental. It just so happens we also are launching a new merch store this is like, oh, wow, Jay, you're you're so on the ball. You're able to launch a merch store to help offset the fiscal cliff problem. Uh, yeah, kind of. That's not that wasn't the plan. Really, the plan is that the, the merch store, 
it might make a little bit of money and that would be okay. You know, there's a, there's a little profit margin built in there. But what we're excited about and the reason why I was willing to do merch for the first time since the beginning of the show, I've had merch before, but not for sale, actually. We've had merch that was available for special rewards. You know, we'd, we would do a membership drive and we'd have merch available as a reward. So, you know, a few people out there have some best of left merch, but not many. It's pretty rare. But our new merch is super fancy and high tech. It is merch with a purpose. It doesn't just help advertise the show because it has the logo on it and people can see it. No, our merch has our new, not patented, but I probably should, show sharer. And you may have noticed the show sharer built into the image of the show. You know, every time there's a new episode and you can see the image on your device, that has the QR code show sharer built into it. It was an idea I came up with in in February of 2020. It was, it was basically the best idea for how to share a podcast from one person to another when those two people are within six feet of each other. It's like, hey, just check out my device, scan the show share with yours, and it'll make it. The, it's the easiest possible way to subscribe to a podcast when you want to share it with a friend, and then. We all moved more than six feet away from one another, and it hasn't, I don't think, been as useful as we otherwise might have thought. But as part of this idea, our merch now incorporates the show sharer as well. And of course, that's for use on stickers, which can be put places where people are going to see and scan shirts, mugs, hoodies, magnets. Did I say stickers? So anyway, uh, our merch store is available. You can find that by going to our website. There's a big banner there. So that's the situation we're in now. We lost our Amazon affiliate program funds, which is the equivalent of about 400 members. So if you've ever considered signing up for a membership, now is definitely the time. And we have gift memberships available as well. Any amount helps get us back to financial health. So Please do that if you can. Also, we just opened a merch store. So the links to all of that are in the show notes very prominently, or just go to bestofleft.com slash support. Everything you need to know about all of this stuff is at bestofleft.com slash support. Now, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, of course, as always, to those of us who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support. That is absolutely now more than ever how the program survives. And now everyone can support the show in a new way by telling everyone you know about it, especially by using our new Refer-O-Matic system, which allows you to earn rewards for doing your friends and the show a favor by introducing us to each other. 
For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.